Okay, let's... <laughs> okay, I'm Edna Sessian, I'm director of the Helix Center. Uh, today's, today's program is on living in the Anthropocene that was suggested to us by Nermin Sheikh, who is sitting there, and I think she had conversations about it with uh, Don Moss and uh, Akil Bilgrami. Uh, we, um, before I uh, tell you something about the participants, we have two more programs before the summer. On May 18, we have a program on shame, and on uh, June 8, we have a program on status. Uh, I'm going to be super brief on the uh, bios. The more extensive ones are available on our website. Akil Birgrami is the Sidney Morgan, Morgan Besser Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. Amitav Ghosh is the author of The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, and of course many others. Dale Jamieson is Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy at New York University. W. John Kress is Distinguished Scientist and Curatory of Botany at Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Donald Moss is a Psychoanalyst, Program Chair of the American Psychoanalytic Association and founding member of the Green Gang. Nermin Sheikh, co-host and new pro news producer of Democracy Now! Uh, she will take over. Uh, as you know, we don't do moderating on these programs, but she will get things going. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ed. So just so everyone knows what the format is, there's roughly no format. We'll just begin talking, and it'll be a kind of free conversation, and after we've spoken for a bit, then we'll open it up to the audience for questions. So I'd like to begin by asking John Kress, who's an environmental scientist, to just lay out the scene. What is the Anthropocene? When did it begin? Uh, and you know, what are the most salient features of this period? No. I recently published a book called Living in the Anthropocene. I think it's appropriate to start with the scientific basis of where we're at in the year 2019 in terms of environmental change. And this is not just climate change, although we think of this as primarily a climate change and a global warming issue. There's a lot of alteration planet that are going on right now that make this broader than just pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, about 10,000, first I should say, the Earth, 4.6 billion years old, has been fluctuating in terms of the climate, the temperature, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, as well as, the, the, uh, as, well as life on the planet. We started out with single-celled organisms, and now we're primarily dominated in terms of physical presence and weight by multicellular animals, uh, mammals, birds, plants. Uh, so there's this, this dynamic aspect of the Earth has been going on for a long time. But about 10,000 years ago, 
maybe 12,000, the end of the last major period of ice ages on the planet. Homo sapiens, humans were around at that point. And about 10,000, 12,000 years ago, suddenly the climate began to stabilize. And we don't exactly know what caused that stabilization, but the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere stabilized, the temperature stabilized, and that was the period when actually humans began to develop our own civilization, our own cultures. Agriculture began, domestication of animals began. So it was this long period of stasis that I attribute, and maybe some of my colleagues attribute, to how one species on the planet, namely Homo sapiens, humans, began or became the dominant species, controlling many of the aspects of how the planet functioned. Uh, that stability of that climate, particularly the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the temperature, has now come to an end. All climate scientists agree that this period of stability is now moving into a period of great fluctuation. CO2 has increased in the atmosphere because primarily of the burning of fossil fuels. That has led to an increase in temperature because of the greenhouse effect, as many of you I'm sure are aware. Uh, the rampant use and abuse of resources around the planet, whether it's wood resources, whether it's fossil fuels, whether it's fresh water, all of those abuses of natural resources has also radically begun to change in the last few years. And as Nermeen said, we're not quite agreed upon when we reached a point where change was such that we could maybe call this a new epic on of the planet, which used to be called the Holocene. But most scientists agree now that it was about the mid-1950s where we reached what was called the Great Acceleration, when all of these aspects of the environment reached a point where they all skyrocketed. So over that period of time since the mid-50s, we have now reached a period in the age of the planet where many of the aspects of stability are radically changing. And I think that's what we want to address today. What does that period of change, how is that going to affect, first of all, us as a species, but also how the rest of the planet functions, whether it's biodiversity, whether it's cycling of water, cycling of nitrogen, whatever. All those things are changing, and I think probably a lot of you are here because you are, you are as concerned as we are about this period of rapid change. So I hope that's kind of what you wanted me to address in terms of setting the stage of where we're at. Amitabh, what about, um, you've written this, um, which I had the opportunity to read, that the great derangement. So can you respond um, to what John Cress said um, in the context of some of the questions that, that you raise in the book, that this new period uh, has made you reflect on the kind of writing uh, uh, that's been produced or being produced, uh, uh, literary writing, uh, and the kind of elisions, the, the absence of this catastrophe, even in the wake of its occurrence. Yeah, that's something that really, I mean, you know, that actually led me to write the book. I mean, the, in the sense that, you know, we are now heading into this period of uh, extremes. We actually don't know what we are heading towards. <laughs> and how little of it is reflected in contemporary writing. And actually, that's not, uh, I mean, that's a trend. I mean, you can see it going ahead. I mean, uh, Indian writers, uh, South Asian writers, you know, 50 years ago, 
they wrote very powerfully about uh, the environment, about forests, about human beings in relation to the earth. Today, if you pick up, uh, you know, go into a bookshop with South Asian literature, it's really all urban stuff. It's all, a lot of it is political in the sense of being about <coughs> politics or it's about identity. But this, uh, this other thing, this, this great reality that is outside us, hardly seems to impinge, uh, you know, on people's sensibilities. And that is, I think, to me, it's, it's the big question. I mean, you know, after all, Hurricane Sandy happened here in New York. It has a larger concentration of writers than almost any other place. Mm. But uh, the curious thing is, can you think of the great Hurricane Sandy novel? <laughs> I mean, there are novels about New York, uh, you know, drowning in the future. Many, several, but there's not a single book about New York's actual drowning. <laughs> you know? But also, as you say in the book, so I'm, after this I'm not going to ask any more questions because I'm not supposed to, but in the book you also uh, uh, point out that when literature explicitly deals with these issues, it's almost always relegated to the realm of science fiction. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, you look at all the uh, you look at all the uh, big reviews and so on. I mean, uh, it's quite rare to see uh, you know novels that deal with these issues ever being regarded as literary fiction. As, mm. So you know, we subscribe to a notion of bourgeois seriousness, which by definition excludes these unlikely things, except that they're not so unlikely anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, I must say that in 2018 there was one book which I feel uh, made a huge difference. And that's Richard Powers's book, Overstory, uh, which was actually on the shortlist for the Man Booker Prize. And I think, in, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I can't go into all of it right now, but uh, I think this book is a very significant event uh, in uh, literary history, really. Hmm. I mean, uh, all of you, really. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing that even progressive and left-leaning uh, writers, thinkers, uh, pretty much till 20 years ago at most, uh, never really thought very much about nature, but never thought about future generations either. You know, all the left was focused, uh, progressive thinking was focused on poverty, and so on, you know, honorably, but, but the idea of future generations as a moral issue, as a political issue, or, uh, or our relations to nature as opposed to each other and the state and so on, just never figured very much in progressive writing till very recently. I think, I think there are several different things going on here. Um, in 2015, I published a collection of short stories with the novelist Bonnie Nadsom called Love in the Anthropocene. And we were on various public radio shows and so on, and I come from the world of philosophy and environmental science, not the world of literature, although writing fiction was fun. And I remember this phrase, idea fiction, being used in a derogatory way. Not, I mean, it wasn't that this is didactic. No, it was just the very idea that the fiction somehow carried an idea already seemed to be a strike against it. I think that's, I mean, so there's something there, I think, in the world of, of, of literature. I mean, I mean, the other thing is, it's extremely difficult, I think, to write about the Anthropocene, especially when we understand it in the way that um, 
the excellent explanation was given. I mean, we're really talking about the disruption of all these cycles, not just the carbon cycle. And, and all this is happening at the same time that technology is increasing radically, that globalization is speeding up incredibly. And when we tend to focus on one thing, I mean, I want to tell you about a climate change world, or I want to tell you about a technologically advanced world, we tend to focus on that thing and then tell the story sort of as if everything else gets held constant and this thing changes. But that's not the future. That's not next week. That's not next month. It's a matter of all of these things changing dynamically in ways that are extremely difficult to understand in terms of the interactions with each other. So I, so I think this is just also just really hard to do, to, to write this kind of literature. If I could remind us, though, that one of the earliest written accounts, the ancient myth of Gilgamesh from the Middle East, which was written on cuneiform plates and has now been translated by a number of over 5,000 years old, was about the relationship of humans to nature. And what was it about? It was about the destruction of the sacred cedar forest by Gilgamesh and Enkidu. So the earliest literature we've ever had was about power, but was also about the relationship between man, our humans, and nature and about the destruction of nature. Mm. So that history of literature goes way back, and what's happened the last 30 years is one perspective, but what's happened the last 5,000 years is a different. But it's also that, you know, much like writing about war is not about all wars mm. or the conditions that give rise globally to wars, but rather a particular war as a backdrop. So similarly with the Anthropocene, I would imagine that any kind of literary writing would take one, what's come to be known as an extreme weather event, or um, and situate the story within that um, context. At least that's the way that I understand it. But, but Don, um, you gave a very interesting paper in Iceland, which I had the pleasure to hear, um, on, on slow violence and the slow violence of climate change or climate catastrophe, as you made the argument, in fact, that it should not be just called change because yeah. that's too benign a word. So why don't you say a little about that? Chime in. Um, before saying anything about that, I wanted to say something about what psychoanalysts have um, been working on for not quite entirely, well, yes, for 120 years or so. And I think that one of the things one would conclude from looking at psychoanalytic literature is that there's a, a deep lack of interest in the future. Um, that is, the entire, the entire discipline is organized. Freud had the famous phrase that neurotic people suffer from reminiscences. And in saying so, uh, the notion would be that people like us who are interested in neurotic people would be focusing on the um, uh, pathogenic consequences of reminiscences and essentially be thinking of people, uh, the labor of becoming a person would essentially be, be the labor of um, liberating oneself from um, a kind of a excessive grip of the past. 
And so that the best one could do would be to arrive in the present tense. Um, and that, that there would be no notion whatsoever of arriving in a present tense that was future-oriented. Um, the task would be completed by arriving now, mm -hmm. uh, at which point one could you know, wipe one's brow and have a drink. Um, you know, uh, with, with, with the, the work completed. And I think that it, it seems to me, I, I just want to say one other thing about that, um, sort of about that. I was, John and I were coming up here together, and um, I was, maybe many of us, we, we watch these Discovery Channel things, and we watch threatened mammals and see how they do and what they're doing. And I was w watching one recently, and I saw all these threatened mammals. Um, and what they do is do their best to uh, adapt to the threat. So if there isn't sufficient ice, they try to make do with the ice that they find. Uh, if there isn't sufficient ice in spot A, they try to move to spot B. Um, if it's too cold here or too warm here, they move up the mountain. Um, but the task is, is, is an immediate one. Uh, you don't have a sense that any of these animals, and I think it would include a huge percentage of humans, that our task always feels either immediate to escape the immediate threat or to escape the regressive pull of the past. Um, and so few of us, and maybe none of our, whatever we call them, uh, primates and earlier in the chart, um, have any notion of the future at all. The one thing I would add about uh, progressive literature, it seems to me Marx uh, is an exception. Uh, <clears throat> that at least the Marx that I loved um, was always written with the future in mind. That is, the whole notion uh, was future-oriented. That is, the, the entire notion of, of what the human task would be. Uh, Hegel interpreted the world, our task is to change it. So, it's, so there you have this um, contribution that was future-oriented. And in that sense, well, just that, okay. Jack, can I ask you, uh, Amitav spoke about the, uh, the lack of consciousness and literary writing about these issues, and, and John is trying to diagnose it uh, for psychoanalysis. But isn't it also true that uh, geology, until it became geosciences, uh, was also very focused on um, on the lithosphere. I mean, they were focused on uh, solid rock and... Focused on um, what, Akhil? We didn't understand. The lithosphere, the solid the rock or molten oh. rock below mm -hmm. the surface or sedimentary phenomena, but it wasn't focused on the hydrosphere or the atmosphere or, or the biosphere. And, it, and all that's now become part of an understanding of what these sciences should be doing. But, mm -hmm. but I assume it's because of this very narrow focus that they didn't they didn't look at the data correctly or something well i think that's what they had to look at they had fossils and they had the hard part of the 
planet to actually study, but now that we're also interested in how the atmosphere and how the hydrosphere and the biosphere is changing, I think scientists, not just geologists, but environmental scientists such mm. as myself, are trying to go back and look and use data that we can find to look at these other parts of the sphere, so ice cores and such, where we can actually interpret what's co what went on in the atmosphere 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 years ago. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. You bring up, I mean, I think of paleontologists when you talk about uh, geologists. And all my paleontologists at the Smithsonian, my paleontologist colleagues, who are always looking back, Don, as you say, they all, when I bring up the Anthropocene, they all say, don't worry. John, relax. Don't worry. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Life has been around for 3.2 billion. If you're worried about the future of life, don't. Because life will go on. We're one species. Things will radically change. If you're worried about your grandchildren, you should do. You should be really worried. Or are you worried about your great-grandchildren? So th I think that What's geologic... What's the distinction? Sorry, I don't understand. That means you should worry about the species, or you shouldn't, or you shouldn't, you shouldn't you worry, worry about, about them long-term. The you should only worry about it immediately. Right. I see. That it's our, our, the future generations of humans that are going to suffer the most. It's not mm -hmm. life on the planet. Even though we are now responsible for a thousand times greater rate of extinction than mm -hmm. happened... 200 years but, you see, ago. what I'm curious about is that when, before the last 20 or 30 years, when they looked at data which might, or which would now, give, them, give us the evidence for short-term trends, what did, did they just dismiss it as noise? I mean, I... I, I I'm just curious, you know, when you, when you look at data, and we now see it as, you know, decadal, or, or you know, maybe even centennial terms, but when you've got this, you know, picture of the time scale being so huge, no, I don't do, you, do you just see the, the short-term trends as noise and dismiss them? What, what was the... No, it wasn't dismissed at all. Uh -huh. I think it was made more relevant by what's happening on the planet today. So suddenly that was academic understanding of changes in atmosphere and hydrosphere. Now, with the changes that are happening in the world today, mm. that data collected in the That's past... That's what I mean. So, yes. so earlier, did they dismiss what would we now see as short-term trends in... Uh, no, as, they didn't know about it. They, they just didn't... Are, are they, they weren't that concerned about it. So, well, I, think, I mean, so there's two different issues here. I want to go back and pick up on something in adaptation, but on this issue, I mean, there's really interesting issues in epistemology and the history of science here. So, um, I mean, so if you take someone like Arrhenius, for example, in 1903, I mean, essentially those calculations that he made on long, cold, boring Swedish nights on the back of an envelope have basically turned out more or less to be right, uh, although we have a very different understanding of the mechanisms that actually make that, that change possible. I mean, I, I think there's two things in response to your question, Akhil, that should be noted. And maybe in some ways they're kind of boring, I don't know, but one thing had to do with the development of, of, of supercomputers. Do you have uh, The development of supercomputers, yeah. which allow you to do all kinds of things in terms of simulating futures yeah. that could simply not 
been done before. I mean, I was around the National Center for Atmospheric Research, for mm -hmm. example. The first time that people were able to link ocean models with atmosphere models, for example. Uh, that sounds like an obvious thing to do, sure. but it's something you actually could not do until the early 1980s when you had the computing power to do it. At the same time, I think you're also on to kind of a sociological fact, which is the, the kind of science that we grew up on was a kind of science that, without stating this explicitly, sort of assumed that nature seeks equilibria. And that divergence from equilibrium states are some way driven by something sort of weird and exogenous to the system. Um, you know, the kind That's of early yeah. biology, for example, that you know, sort of talks about climax ecosystems and so on is, is of that mo mode. We're now in an era where we tend to see disequilibrium and chaos, if you will, as more the natural state of things. Now, th that isn't a purely scientific discovery. That has something to do with the changes in political and social it climate and the, and the kind of cultural you know, settings in terms of how we look at the data. So it's, so it's epistemological, but yeah. driven by these things. Right. And, and I was just wondering to what extent just looking at the time scale in very large terms just makes us dismiss these things as noise. But it's interesting, the equilibrium, uh, uh, that's a sort of theoretical pre-commitment which would drive one to it too. Yeah. If I can just say one thing in response to your comment about kind of how science has changed over the last 30 years. When I was a graduate student studying tropical ecology, my job was to go out and find a pristine habitat in nature and study the biology, study the interactions between the organisms and try to find out how nature works. That is no longer the paradigm anymore. The paradigm is to go out and find out how humans are affecting those systems. It's totally changed. You can't find a single graduate student in environmental sciences that is going out to look at a pristine system because they do not exist anymore. I wonder whether there are any, like if you think about the Anthropocene as a kind of, I mean, it's a silly word to use, but let's say pathology, um, a kind of, um, what's the word, a, a, a catastrophic change in what had been a stable, um, a stable form of life, let's say. And then there's this pathogenic series of events that we're talking about. So are there, are there any, um, in medicine, in, in any zone, in, in all the uh, humanities, are, is there any zone in which contemporary pathologies are being addressed in a serious way with the future in mind? Or, are, or is all serious address of pathologies organized around eliminating the pathology, hmm. at which point the aim would, would be accomplished. Are, are, there, um, are there pathologies being addressed with a serious focus on generations to come? 
I, I say this uh, not, not as a knowledgeable person about it, but with my suspicion that the answer would basically be no. But you see, Don, I, I think that you, you're quite right to say that Marx was a relatively early figure who steered us towards uh, the future and the way he responded to it. But both in Hegel and Marx and, you know, uh, one of the most interesting commentaries on Hegel is this very Heideggerian reading of him, which is Kozhev's lectures. Um, the thing is that that orientation towards the future, that gaze on the future, was very messianic. Yes. Right, that this mm. is how things will end up as some kind of ideal. Theological. Yeah. Whereas, whereas I think what's essential to these issues is something which better be more open-ended. Open the issues of, of climate and, and the environment and, you know, what, what the nomenclature of Anthropocene is intended to, to capture, better be much more open-ended, right, and not thought of in these terms. Anyway, something to, <clears throat> to well, get other people to... What do you mean by open-ended? That is, it, it isn't as if there is some telos ah, towards which, you know, some messianic end. Yes. Right? It's, that it's, it's something... You mean uncertainty? You mean... Yeah, uncertainty, uh, and... Um, and therefore, keeping a very wide range of options open yes. as to what might be done about it, or uh, yeah. both by way of constraint. And, 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 and actually, a, a preparedness to be reactionary, to say, let's just go back. Uh, the future might be a better, uh, there, there might be better outcomes in the future if we were actually against modernity, mm. yes. or against, you know, even that should be a possible option. So that's yes. what I mean by it. Okay. Yes. Wilding, the notion of wilding, yeah. um, it would be yeah. something... Yeah, in, so be more conservative, and, yes. and not mm -hmm. be radical in the sense of, you know, thinking we can change anything at our will, etc. Yes. Um, but isn't going back, isn't that change? No, it is change, but, but it's not the kind of thing that, mm -hmm. that Hegel, Marx, and, ah, and other okay. figures thought of, brought in the future in the way that you had noticed. Uh, I mean, we, we tend to have these two orientations towards the future. One is utopianism, which is largely disastrous in terms of human history, in my opinion. And the other is muddling through. And the amazing thing, which is what we actually do most of the time, and the amazing thing about muddling through is not that it actually works, it's that it seems to work. And it seems to work in part because of this incredible power of adaptation that humans have, both to adapt to changing circumstances, but also to adapt their preferences and desires about things. And so when people talk about the Anthropocene and how terrible the 21st century is going to be and so on and so forth, it's a very delicate thing to talk about because there's lots of things I want people to do in response to this. But look back at the 20th century. 
unbelievable disaster. Millions and millions and millions of people killed. Vast parts of the, of the, of the planet destroyed and despoiled. A decade after, after Rome was in rubble and people were eating cats, it was La Dolce Vita. I mean, with, 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 with very little sense of how close people were to those events. And I think one mistake that we make about thinking about the future is when we imagine the world in 2020 when you know, things are really getting going, or 2030 or 2040, we imagine ourselves in, into that future with the baselines from where we come and the preferences we have and the desires we have. But the people who are going to be born into that, in, into that world um, are not going to mourn the same things that we would mourn were we to be born into that world. And that makes it even more difficult, I think, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to think about the future from where we are now on these long time scales. Well, let me tell actually one of the things um, in your book which was very striking is um, you cite the example of Gandhi, of course, who was one of the early figures, um, prominent figures to understand that modernity in its uh, present form, and one can only say that it's accelerated since then, to recognize that the form of life that that was giving rise to would simply not be possible, accessible, or uh, uh, sustainable for the entire population. So, I mean, in terms of this, I don't know whether you would see that, Gandhi's insight, as, of course, also an insight into the future. He imagined, in a sense, what's come to pass. That's uh, a very interesting... Look, I mean, the reality is that it wasn't just Gandhi. I mean, mm -hmm. actually, ordinary people everywhere knew that this disaster was... that this kind of modernity was taking us to disaster. The Chartists knew it, the Luddites mm. knew it. You know, ar around the world, wherever this thing went, mm. people tried to resist. I mean, I just today I was reading about how, in the 19th century, uh, the Bonaparte state was trying to impose certain forestry regulations on Italy <laughs> and how, how strongly the Alpine peasants resisted because actually they held land in common, you know. There was no tragedy of the commons. They held land in common and they mm -hmm. regulated it. You know, so I think we forget sometimes how new this, this regime of property is. We also forget that, you know, before the 18th century, really people everywhere around the world understood you know, that uh, there are certain limits, you have to act in certain ways, you have to act for the future, as they did in Japan during the 17th century. So, uh, none of those things is uh, really... But a view to the future in this sense of uh, a shrinking uh, resources and the possibly injurious effects of consumption, acquisition, this was the, I mean, of the examples that you're citing? Yes. or. It was just a more communally oriented... It was that, but it was also that people recognized... So I'm certainly with Akil. I think at this point, you know, uh, I think the thing we have to understand really is that this disaster has been brought upon us by, by, by essentially the 19th and 20th centuries, mm -hmm. what we call education, what we call rationality. And I would say that in this, psychoanalysis plays a very large part. You know, I say this as someone who, you know, loved to read Freud. But you can see in retrospect that in a way it's a part of a whole constellation of things that has brought us, uh, you know, to this disaster. And really the task ahead of us is to try and unlearn 
Mm-hmm. Just today I was reading such an interesting, uh, interesting uh, book. Uh, it's on uh, art and the Anthropocene, you know. So in the Little Ice Age, as it was advancing, you know, the, the last great sort of um, atmospheric uh, fluctuation was in the 17th century. So in India, for example, um, uh, the Emperor Akbar, very early on, he responds to this in an artistic sense. You know, the droughts and the terrible atmospheric disturbances, they commission, uh, you know, a lot of art around this, but also they commission, uh, you know, all sorts of waterworks, all kinds of... So it entered their minds in a way that this doesn't enter our mind now. And why is that? It's because we've, we've been educated so we're back to another question, which is about agency here. And one of the things that that's some sort of paradoxical about the Anthropocene is collectively we are remaking the world, but individually people tend to feel quite powerless in terms of, of affecting that collective outcome. And, and that, I think, is, is really the fundamental challenge when one talks about change in response. Yeah, but, but I, I think... But, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tom. By educated and by modernity and by disaster and by psychoanalysis. <laughs> so those four words uh, put in a cluster. Um, I think what you're getting at is the kind of um, emergence of, of what could be called, what, what do we say, um, a kind of fetishized individual. Um, and that uh, the educated individual is a fetishized, is a is a fetishized individual and a fetishizing individual. Um, that is who turns his or her individuality mm-hmm. into um, a magical talisman, which represents success, and who turns other individuals into talisman also. So. I, so I think you hold psychoanalysis at least in part responsible for that. For, and well, I, I mean, you said you it. I'm not, it I'm not just <laughs> inferring that. I, you just said yes. it. Um, and I, I, I agree with you. Um, it's hard to say responsible because I think it's actually hard to locate responsibility yeah. anywhere when you think about a historical trend modernity. Well, can one name the responsible agent for modernity? It wouldn't be easy to do. And nor would it be easy to hold one responsible for wanting to become a modern person. It's hard to locate responsibility in there. True. It's hard to attribute it to that form of agency, but, but one could make helpful diagnostic uh, attempts by noticing. So if you, if you take some of the concepts that, that Dale and Amitav that surfaced in, in things they said, so if you take the tragedy of the commons, right, uh, the tragedy is supposed to arise because commoners <coughs> are supposed to ask See, to have a collective cultivation of the commons, you need the commoners to cooperate. But the tragedy of the commons arises amongst 
other, other things, but crucially, because each commoner, by rationality, right, mm. that was, I think, partly behind Amitav's point, one could tease this out, it's by rationality one is supposed to ask, but what if I cooperated and others didn't? Mm -hmm. right? yes. That's supposed to be something, it's supposed to be a rational anxiety, and nothing can soothe it, mm. right? Except non-cooperation. Yes. Mm -hmm. right? It's more rational not to cooperate. Yes. That means the tragedy of the cause. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so there's a, a real sense in which this notion of rationality, right, emerged with a whole range of other things, such as uh, captured in Locke's, you know, chapter on property in the second treatise, and a whole range of economic thinking that consolidated Locke in game theoretic terms and in terms of multi-person prisoners' dilemmas and so on. So, so these are all modern ideals of rationality, and they are completely tied up with things about what is required to keep the commons going, and so on and so forth, whether it's fresh air commons or pastoral or agricultural commons. So, so these things are, I don't know what about agents, but they're outlooks they're that emerged in pretty much since the mid-17th century. Okay, I'd like to just say something there. I think we have to remember that this guy, Gareth Hardin, who came up, who wrote that yeah, sure. paper on the tragedy of the commons, uh, he was a white supremacist, he was a eugenicist, a fascist, really. And his idea of the commons comes from exactly what you're saying, which is this idea that people who think of themselves as uh, maximizing individuals, if allowed upon the commons, uh, will destroy the commons. But that doesn't tell us how you know, these, say, Italian peasants or Indian peasants or peasants anywhere, really, uh, do actually manage their commons uh, very effectively. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that is also a Western concept, particularly modern the, the concept. Yes, and I what which concept? This uh, this tragedy of the commons yeah. or white supremacy, or whatever. Yeah. When I my experience around the world, particularly in Asia, I, I think there's a very different sense of the commons and a very different sense of social responsibility than there is in in North America and Europe right now. Yeah, that's the thing. It's North America. I mean, yes. it's it's the it's essentially that kind of. Uh, you know, um, this cornucopian idea that you have once, uh, once English settlers come to America, that the land will always provide, you know, and uh, each one for himself. And it also, I mean, that also raises the question um, of agency, right? When we speak of these, like, can you fault someone for wanting to be a modern individual? The question could also be asked, does one leave people with a choice to be anything but a modern individual. It's not as though, I mean, now you see it in all of these movements, um, indigenous peoples in, uh, uh, in Latin America, uh, peasants in large parts of South Asia, they are being forced um, by various systems, I mean, capitalism obviously one of the most egregious, um, to adopt, adapt, and adopt ways of life because simply the way of life that they've had is no longer tenable. And it's no longer tenable because of these larger system structures that are propelling them outside a form where for them there is no other outside. I think so, that's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, uh, but you know, 
I don't think there's any response that one can make once one acknowledges what you're uh, quite rightly pointing out, except to say that even when we are shaped by the structures that you describe, we go in and out of being cooperative and non-cooperative. You know, in some frames of thinking, we are, we, it wouldn't dream of us to ask, what if I cooperated and others didn't, I'm not going to cooperate. Mm -hmm. There are many, many contexts, quotidian contexts, you know, where one is completely, it, the question never occurs to one to, to ask that deeply alienated question, you know, which, which you're saying is shaped by structures of modern society. And yet, in many public contexts, that's precisely how we think. <laughs> you know, in this, in this way of modern rationality and so on. So, so really, I think it's a very important task of politics to, to try and see how we can scale up the context in which we are not, asked, you know, not, not driven by those ideals of rationality, scale them up so that we, they yield the conceptual resource for us to criticize the other frame in which we think. You know, I mean, that's, that should be a very central goal of politics. So, uh, I keep having things I want to ask, but then we keep moving on and I forget what I was going to <laughs> I will just throw out a couple of things. One is, climate change is a problem that exists today. And it wasn't a subject that people talked about 50 years ago. They didn't talk about, like you said, when I was at university, we didn't worry about climate change. So that uh, since it has now become a problem, we can look back and say, well, we did all these things wrong, and so now we are here, and now we have to try and find a way to fix it. Which isn't that unusual a thing. It's happened in other situations where you catch yourself at some point having built up towards something wrong, and now you have to fix it. Uh, but, you know, it has to be taken, seems to me, along with other things that we... And, and, and the, the causes of climate change have, to a large degree, helped in the, devolution, in the evolution of a civilization and where we are today. Uh, now we didn't do it completely right, but we didn't know how to do it completely right. So that's why we are here, and we should try to fix it. Uh, the other thing that was uh, that occurred to me is that, in a way, you know, Freud came up and uh, criticism of Freud came up. But the fact is, when religion dominated everything, then you assumed that God would take care of everything. There wasn't this idea that we are so powerful that we are going to fix things that God isn't going to take care of. We just have to be good go to confession, and eventually things will work out. So it's more of a concern, become more of a concern now where there's a diminution of religion, there's less effect of God on everybody's uh, thinking, and uh, so it's become a major concern. Now, it should also be said that even though it's such an important thing, there are many other things we don't know anything we don't know what to do about. We don't know what to do, which for some people who don't want to get so, spend so much time on climate change because it's more relevant to their lives is 
earthquakes, uh, volcanoes, hurricanes, things that have, we still don't fully know how to predict, but which have devastating effect on people's lives. Those are just random thoughts that I was thinking as you were talking. So, so, one, so just two things. One is, um, without really disagreeing with the historical story, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, for example, climate change was mentioned by President Johnson in a message to Congress in 1965. There has really been something like a concerted attempt to obscure the continuous history of the knowledge of this. Yes, a, there are two books are reviewed on the, in the New York yeah. Times uh, for the weekend uh, where they say uh, that uh, it was already in Congress in the 70s. It absolutely was. But I mean, it, uh, it happened. Right. It happened. Right. So, I mean, I mean, so that's a whole other issue. But, but what's tended to happen uh, is that about every 10 years, people wake up and look around and say, What's this climate change stuff? Nobody ever told me about this. Mm. And then become somnambulant again, you know, until, in, until the next upsurge. But I, I, I want to go back to this agency issue, because I really think that, that this is key. It, you know, it's not just indigenous peoples who, mm. who view themselves as being involved in coercive systems. It's also people, you know, who, who, who live in the suburbs who want to take their kids to school and would like not to burn gasoline, but don't Absolutely. feel that there's, there's any, any other way of doing this. And I think, so, I mean, one of the things that I think is really central to sort of the meaning of the Anthropocene is that the kind of coercive structures that humanity used to feel imposed on itself by nature are now imposed on us by our social, political, and economic systems. And if anything, this vice of coercion feels to people, I think, across nations and societies as rigid, perhaps even more rigid and, and, and inescapable as the vice of nature once felt to people. Hmm. Why so? Do you, so, but would you say that but the word coercion, it's interesting, I, but the word coercion, in order to feel coerced, you have to be imagining non-coercion. You have to have an image, a realistic image of something that feels real to you. Oh, it could be otherwise. We, it, we, we would need that in order to feel coerced today. So, but if the source of, con of coercion is nature, are people imagining an alternative nature such that See, I, I'm just trying to uh, distinguish between coercion and necessity. So uh, nature might in, uh, induce necessity, at least as I would think, whereas um, capital induces coercion. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, it, it depends on how you experience this from nature. So if you experience this through a god, for example, and particularly a wrathful an arbitrary god. Maybe that stands somewhere between the necessity of nature and the, right. and, and the coercion of something that looks like capital. I, I don't know. And I'm not so invested in the comparison anyway. I mean, what I think is really important is, is again, this, this kind of weird paradox where it's humanity who's remaking the planet. It's not nature 
in the non-human sense. It's not aliens, you know, from somewhere else. It's us that are doing it. But yet, there is this, this sense of powerlessness. I, I think about it, not necessarily coercion, but constraints and restraints. And yeah. earlier, nature wasn't a constraint, because nature, when, we, when Europeans landed in North America, it was an endless garden. Even though there were a lot of other people here already uh, taking care of that garden. So nature seemed to not constrain us. We've reached a point where we realize that resources are finite now for our population use. And we could argue when those finite resources will run out or when they won't run out. Uh, but we realize that the planet is a certain size. And we also realize that there's more of us on the planet using those resources. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're beginning to feel that constraint being ourselves rather than but nature before. Do you think that the fault line was earlier when we actually equated, began to equate nature with natural resources? Right? It's, it's fine to... to uh, I mean, it, it's true what you say, that you know, resources will run out, but that's still a very anthropocentric way of seeing the problem. It's, it does seem to me that we, we at some point, transform the concept of nature into the concept of natural resources. Mm. And that transformation was, was a fault line in, in landing us in the midden that we are in. For uh, sure. I mean, it, tur it turns nature into quantity. That's what you mean. No, as, as, you see, this goes back to what Ed was asking which is if you desacralize yeah. nature at some point, um, nature first got equated with, without remainder, exhaustively equated with the idea of what the natural science is studying. Right? So nature contained no properties that the natural sciences don't study or can't study. Right? Now, I think that's a superstition of modernity. Yes. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, many people who I know and admire, uh, who have great concern for climate change, like my friend Peter Singer, your friend too, that's how he, he would see nature as that which the natural sciences study and try and recover such environmental anxieties that he has uh, and develop them within that assumption. Uh, but I think the assumption is wrong. I, I, as a natural scientist, I, I believe that nature exists outside what natural scientists can study. It has no, I mean, there will be nature on the planet long after natural scientists are gone. No, and that's that, true. That's that, but that, that, that's a slightly different point, and I think that's uh, perfectly correct. But what I'm suggesting is that people have started saying, famous people, people who, who get Nobel Prizes, uh, have, have started saying things like, it's unscientific to say that nature contains properties that the natural sciences can't study, such as value properties. So you're, another, you're speaking in a sense of the so-called disenchantment of nature, like Francis Bacon or people like that. 
Um, no, I'm saying that when, when nature got desacralized, or disenchanted, some, some, some kind of baby was thrown away with yes, the yes. bath water, yeah. which is that value properties yes. got evacuated as well yes. from yes. nature. Mm. Yes. And, and I'm saying there's, there's, you can be an atheist and insist that nature contains value properties which yes. should constrain our behavior mm -hmm. yes. towards nature. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and I'm saying that a lot of scientists, yes. not doing science, but yes. doing philosophy in their own time, yes. uh, have equated nature with what the natural sciences study. Yes. So when Dawkins says things like that, He's not talking as a scientist. He's yes. talking about as a public intellectual or yeah. philosopher. And as Wittgenstein said, you know, only a philosopher could say something as absurd as that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I have one thing to talk about what you're saying having to do with something I think is quite um, potentially useful about psychoanalysis in this regard. And uh, it's a Melanie Klein notion of uh, depressive and paranoid schizoid positions. And she has the infant initially essentially treating the mother as uh, a natural resource in the sense that you mean it. That is simply a, 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 um, a site from which to extract uh, value and um, vital supplies um, with, the, with the premise of an unlimited, unlimited uh, set of resources. And um, let's say that the infant is, in that sense, a natural scientist in relation to its um, mother so conceived. And then comes this fateful moment, so says Klein, in which the nature of the position is changed and the nature of the change is toward a depressive position with the implication of a kind of um, melancholy acceptance um, of the mother's limitation, of of the uh, the limitation in her in her resource capacity, but at the same time a huge expansion of her status as um, I don't know what as something other than resource. So losing her as a source of unlimited resource. Um, that's the cost. The, the, the gain is uh, a vision of her as um, an entity that needs protection, um, no less than I do. Hmm. And in that sense, there's something, um, how can I say, there's something theorized in psychoanalysis that I think is uh, kind of Very congruent with what you're saying. Yeah. You see what I mean? Is, yeah. Uh, but it's obviously not the aspects of psychoanalysis that, no. that Amitabh was uh, no, no, no. saying. No, no, can, no. Can I ask the two of you to talk a little a bit about that? Uh, uh, if he starts. About the, the <laughs> oh, right. you made some rude remarks about psychoanalysis. No, I mean, so, I was just following. I mean, as you said, uh, we were both know, saying this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it individualizes. Uh, there comes to be a reliance upon individual histories, <laughs> upon the past. Uh, but you know, I think the important thing that we can't forget here. Well, two things. I must say, for me now, I find Jung's thinking much more interesting in relation to the Anthropocene. 
Um, the other thing is that I think we can't forget here that really, uh, you know, uh, one of the major scientists writing the IPCC said the other day, you know, that climate change is not a natural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's actually the ongoing effect of inequality. Mm -hmm. And especially those of us who are from India or China or Indonesia or wherever, you know, this is the thing. I mean, the solving or the addressing of climate change is no longer in Western hands. Mm -hmm. It's really going to be decided in Asia because Asia has the weight of numbers. And the reason why nobody can can go to an Asian population and say, cut back your uh, your emissions is because they say, well, we we just want what they have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that. I mean, yes. that's really the fundamental yeah. dynamic that drives it. But I think that, oh. Isn't there a way out of this except for science? Well, I, I'd just like to follow up on your point. We haven't really talked about economic systems yet and the impact of economic systems on climate change. And some of you may know there's ecological economics now, which is beginning to rise as an alternative to capitalistic economics and neoliberalism and such things. It seems to me, my reading of the literature, which is that economics is not immune to natural laws, is not immune to science, is not immune to social interactions, but really depends on that in a way. And we have to change our system and, and move away from this capitalistic approach, which is based upon consumerism and the using of resources rather than the, the respect for resources in some way. So, I mean, Dale, I'd like your kind of response to that, because it seemed like you have thought about that. Quite yeah, a bit. <laughs> I have. I'm afraid my, my thoughts about this are somewhere between cynical and <laughs> orthogonal. Um, um, and in a way, they, they go back to beginning with what Amatov was saying, because um, you know, there was a moment when we could have tried to address climate change in a relatively just way. And the rhetoric is there in the 1992 Framework Convention, which mm -hmm. talks about common but differentiated responsibilities. It, by, 19, by 2000, it was clear that we were not going to, that this was just off, which was more than disappointing for many of us. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the fact is, we've never addressed collective problems through a lens of justice. Yeah. So there's a sense in which the approaching climate change on the backs of the poor and powerless is business as usual for homo sapiens. I mean, Rousseau is right about, about this. Um, the closest we ever were to an egalitarian state were the hunter-gatherers of the state of nature. And, this, and the story since then has been a story of domination of some, of some form or another. Um, so, yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave, well, I I'll leave it at that. Just a, a comment about hunter-gatherers. Some scientists and sociologists put the beginning of the Anthropocene back 10,000 years with the origins of agriculture and domestication, when exactly. the use of land started changing radically, and then there became haves and haves not. Right, with that. resources so, were concentrated. Yeah. I just want to say one thing also about Amatel's remark. Um, regarding that phrase, we just want what they have. Now, in a certain sense, that could be the anthem of uh, the Oedipus complex, 
Uh, <laughs> you know, that, uh, really, that it, it is precisely that, that notion um, that, I don't, I guess, maybe I shouldn't say precisely, but uh, thinking that that's what drives um, people from their earliest moment. We just want what they have. Um, with the resentment um, inherent in that, the entitlement inherent in that, the, um, the sort of righteousness inherent um, in that. Can yes. I just say, well, well, do you isn't that just something, some words Freud applied to something that has always existed? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not meaning to say the Oedipus complex. I mean to say that phrase, that that notion of we just want what they have, I just want what he has. However, one puts that, wanting what we see others have, sets the stage for the kind of uh, rapaciousness and um, what's the word anti-limit uh, mentalities both individually and socially, that I think we're, we're holding responsible. I mean, just a, a couple of points. First, um, someone here said uh, that climate change was first broached in the U.S. with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson in the 60s. <coughs> I mean, the extraordinary thing is, I mean, the U.S. is a real outlier uh, in the sense, the extent to which there's uh, climate denialism and so on. But... You know, just to get a sense of the, the scale of the asymmetries uh, involved, uh, Rob Nixon, whom you cited as well in your paper in Iceland, uh, who's written this book called uh, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, he points out that the state of California, one state, the state of California, burns more gas than the 54 countries of Africa combined. That's 900 million people. Um, as far as Asia is concerned, uh, we just want what they have. It's, it's not just, I mean, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, uh, which Amitav uh, uh, hinted at earlier, is in terms of the numbers, yes, the, the, the um, effects, decisions, changes, will be made there. But also, nine of the 10 cities in the world that are the most at risk uh, from climate catastrophes that will possibly not survive are in Asia. So, you know, I think um, it's important to keep in mind how, when we think of economic systems, mm -hmm. we think of an inequality. It's not just, you know, some people have a little more and we have a little less, and so, you know, we should just accommodate ourselves to this kind of um, inequality. I mean, it's on such a, a massive and really unconscionable scale where there, the casualties of this system, you know, however one assigns uh, uh, agency, the casualties are so disproportionately, uh, I mean, you can't even in a sense compare them. Um, in the poor countries and among the poor globally. Uh, I have to say here that uh, 
I don't agree with this idea that uh, people have always believed that uh, we want what they have. In fact, that's the when you may. if I may, uh, what you said about Gandhi, the mm-hmm. bit that I quote about Gandhi is exactly that. He's saying we don't what we don't want what they have. We want our lives. And I remember in my own lifetime, I can't remember my parents ever harboring this idea that I want what they have. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, in fact, uh, if you think of, say, um, Amerindian peoples, they never never came, uh, you know, uh, to join uh, sort of white settlers. It was white settlers who went to join (laughs) them. Uh, So it's an interesting thing. I think what has actually happened, I must say, is a technological thing. I think this, uh, the spread of information, Mm -hmm. the net, uh, especially this very powerful technology of the uh, of the cell phone, that is really what has changed this. I mean, uh, you know, now everybody has access to, they can see on their screen what everybody else has. There's been a flattening of desire around mm-hmm. the planet mm-hmm. in a way that has never existed so historically. We, yeah, the mm-hmm. technologies do em- enhance that. That is certainly true. But if you look at the attitudes and outlook, right, it, it goes back further. I mean, if you, if you think of the fact that, so everybody insists on the centrality of the market because the market is supposed to be an indicator of preferences. Right? And, and that's, it's like a mantra. You know, the market indicates even, there, even market socialism now, which doesn't want to give up the market because it's an indicator of preferences. But the fact is that it's that outlook about the market, which gives rise to a whole range of institutions mm-hmm. which shape preferences and Absolutely. desires. Right? So it's, it can't be that the market is, an, is, the, is the indicator when, when, in fact, what the market indicates is actually shaped by, you know, this goes back to advertising and so on, which, which uh, no doubt is enhanced by the technologies you're describing. But desire creation goes back a very long way, and it's very much part of the thing which gave rise to the market ideology anyway. It's all just part of a single In which uh, uh, Freud's nephew is implicated. What is his name? Sorry? The guy, uh, Century of the Self, Freud's nephew who came to the U.S. and that's the one. Edward yeah. uh, so, Thank you. So, so, to, I, I, so I want to gather some of these pieces because I think mm-hmm. the story is even larger than the one we're, we're, we're telling. And, let, and let's just go back to the, to the beginning. I mean, so when, we, so when we talk about, say, the failures of rational choice theory and the problem of cooperation, I mean, that is one problem. There's always going to be an issue about how any individual's perception of their own welfare, whatever language you want to put it in, how, how, how that can work with a community. This is not a new problem. But that's only one feature of what it's like to be human. Other features of what it's like to be human are simply to have an extremely high discount rate on the future. We, I mean, we are social apes of a particular kind uh, that are built to privilege, for example, rapid movements of middle-sized objects in our visual field not to think clearly about the slow buildup of invisible, insensible trace gases in the atmosphere. Um, Short-term survival, especially in many other countries, short-term survival is a lot more important. Well, it it is for all of us. I mean, so this is where, I mean, this is what we have to work with. I mean, our basically apish self that I'm describing 
is our means of survival or destruction. That's, that's the beginning. And then we sort of move out from there and we start dealing with these social systems that we've constructed, the way they interface with technology. And I completely agree that this technological revolution, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it's hard to talk about the Anthropocene sensibly in terms of its real meaning without that technological explosion. But then at the next level, which we haven't really touched on, which I think is terribly important, is the, the collapse of our political institutions, I think, uh, is closely associated with these features of the Anthropocene. The ability to project action at a distance, for example, that technology allows us to do. The fact that democratic governments are failing and flailing to solve the characteristic problems of the, of the, of the climate change uh, and, and the Anthropocene. All of this, I think, is really, is really bound together. And that's why I think these are really unprecedented times for humanity. This is not just another problem that we face. One of the things we have to address there also is that, you know, uh, because of this whole climate denial narrative, mm. the idea that there are denialists uh, has, been, has been posed as a sort of cognitive issue, you know, mm. whereas it's perfectly possible to look at the same set of facts and have completely different uh, approaches to it. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, say someone uh, like Peter Thiel, for example, a very clever man, he understands the science perfectly well. It's not that those people don't have a plan for climate change. They do. They have, and their plan is that lots of people must die. Mm-hmm. That is their plan. And this is, uh, uh, this is essentially an aspect mm-hmm. of settler ideology, you know, going back again to the history of America. You know, it's, it's mediated war. That is like the distribution of smallpox blankets or something. You know, let the let uh, impersonal systems take care of this problem, and that's so. That's why they want to actually hurry forward, you know, to make this worse and worse. But do you think that plan is a rational plan? Is that plan? It's going completely to work? irrational. Exactly. It's completely. That's irrational. what's bad for the species yeah. and bad for the planet. I agree, but yeah. they, that is their plan. Oh, I agree. Yes, <laughs> you it know. certainly is. Go ahead, Ed. No, I just want to say... One last... Amitabh, if you could, because I think one of the things that I found um, your reading, 2015, you say, um, there were two key texts that were produced on uh, climate change. One was the highly technocratic uh, report at the Paris Climate uh, uh, Conference, the, the Climate Accord, and then there was Laudato Si, the encyclical of the Pope, And, you know, in terms of uh, technology, of this kind of scientific rationality, the absence of uh, any kind of uh, agency responsibility, the language in the two texts was so dramatically different. Could you just say before we open it to questions, Amitabh, the, the, the distinctions and what that's suggestive of? Sure. Uh, what I did in my book is just to sort of uh, read those two pieces, that is the IPCC report and uh, Laudato Si, for their rhetoric. And, uh, you know, the IPCC, uh, uh, the, the Climate Accord, is a document that's completely seeks to obscure the problem, mm-hmm. you know, whereas what is really interesting about Laudato Si is uh, how it, he tries to open the text, you know, this, the simplicity of the language, and how I think, where I felt most profoundly in agreement with him is that 
you know, he says ultimately that this can't be addressed scientifically. Mm-hmm. It is a moral issue. It is an Absolutely. issue of belief, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this becomes more pressing day by day because actually we all know what's going to happen. All the apparatus is being put in place for geoengineering. You know, we can see that coming. Mm-hmm. And geoengineering is going to be a part of this plan of uh, basically genocide. Because mm-hmm. we know that the, a geoengineered Earth will interfere with many systems that are profoundly important for the global south, the monsoons, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, so there, I have no doubt in my mind that what is going to happen in a, in a foreseeable future is some billionaire is going to take out a boat or take out something mm-hmm. and try and create, you know, inject sulfur into the atmosphere. You can see it. It's being normalized. Harvard is now, you know, pushing this. Even the National Academy of Sciences wrote a report on geoengineering, which scared the heck out of mm-hmm. me, to tell you the truth. But I just want to make one comment. I mm-hmm. think those two documents should be read, uh, read in tandem and shouldn't be read as two different statements about the same problem. I think they are written for very different audiences, and one should read both of those together. Anyway. Right, can I just, before we go into a more general... I, I think that, I just want to go back to what I think um, some, something for which psychoanalysis ought to be held responsible and um, culpable. Um, that is, I, I think that we have forgotten the moral dimension of being people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, utterly forgotten it. Um, it's, it's not actually a feature of our practice, I don't think. The only way it's a feature of our practice is um, to help individuals live um, in accord with individual notions of morality. So in that sense, it's in our practice. But um, there is, at least what I, in anything that I've read or encountered, there is zero... Um, zero notion of anything communal, anything mm-hmm. larger than the family. Mm. Um, and that is not a necessity. That is, one could imagine a psychoanalysis losing nothing and adding that. Mm. Um, it, it's, not a, it's not a cost um, at all. So... I think that were something like that to be added to the extant body of psychoanalysis, um, it's something that we analysts could, could uh, in principle, do to modify our place on the planet. And, um, okay. I, I know we need to go on, but I, just to interpret what you just said, Don, from a scientist's point of view, and I get this from a colleague of mine, Lindsay Clarkson, who's also a psychoanalyst, Psychoanalysis focused on the internal world only, yeah. not the external world, how one relates to the external world, and that's nature, and, and that's others. the community, yeah. and the community, and I think yes. that's where psychoanalysis does yeah. have to. Yeah. Right, but Freud wrote about the future of an illusion and, yes. and civilization, uh, civilization and its discontents. And discontents, where he addressed that, but he addressed that in a very scientific way. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. He, he just thought of these as counter-drives to the yes. drives of the id. Uh, yes, there you go. So we should open up the, for some questions.
thank you all. It was a very interesting talk. Uh, my question will be for all of you, anybody who'd like to uh, answer it. Um, I'm going to make a couple of quick generalizations so I can formulate it into a question. So uh, the idea of the tragedy of the commons was that if everybody was selfish and acted individually, it would be a tragedy. And uh, on the other side of the argument, Eleanor Ostrom got a Nobel Prize by saying people don't do that in, in ordinary life. They act as communities and they see holistically and they work it out. Who's the Ostrom? Eleanor Ostrom. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. So there's these two alternative possibilities. Now, again, to oversimplify so I can ask the question, uh, when civilizations are characterized, it's uh, simplified by saying uh, all civilizations have uh, put the community before the individual. Uh, Western civilization is the first civilization where the individual was put on a pedestal before the community. Uh, and that's, uh, Western civilization has ruled the roost for the last 500 years in the modern era, so that individual has been at the forefront. Um, and I think if we go back to the uh, tragedy of the commons, you've got this uh, uh, analogy I'm trying to draw that you have two possibilities. You can um, promote the individual, which generally tends to be at the cost of the community, or vice versa. And I think because Western civilization is the dominant uh, uh, zeitgeist of our times, um, we are destroying the commons, that is to say, planet Earth. And um, I would say that the you know, as, as Pogo said, we have found the enemy and the enemy is us. And I think it's, it's the whole um, zeitgeist of Western civilization, of individualism. And um, I think that, um, well, anyway, I think I, I kind of made the point. I would like to see how people feel about that. Well, you know, Ostrom, uh, shouldn't be cited as a contrast to what Hardin is summarizing, uh, going back to Locke. Um, what Ostrom, it's a brilliant book, Governing the Commons, 